Jennifer Fisk and I get together on a regular basis and, and chat about uh, mental health. And so here we are with one of our regular get togethers on, on the show. You and I have talked pre-COVID about uh, mental health issues that we have both been facing throughout our life. So you have a very, very uh, high level of anxiety and OCD which has caused you some great barriers through your life. And then I've been living with bipolar one disorder, which has also created some interesting times for me. Uh, so two things that I want to start with today is one is we've talked a lot about mental health during COVID. And we have had a conversation when the world started to open up again about what it felt like to be leaving sort of the cocoon of COVID and moving back into the real world. And we both were very concerned that while there was so much understanding um, and knowledge about mental health struggles during COVID, because pretty much everybody had some level of uh, distress that they, were, that they were dealing with, and, and, and that helped a lot with stigma, and reducing yep. stigma. And the big fear was moving out of this. And both of us worried is if the world sort of goes back to some semblance of normal, are we also going to return to those normal attitudes and stigma where uh, I feel great? I don't want anybody to know that I don't feel great because I feel like they're going to think I'm less of a person. Is that what is happening? I'd have to say, I think if I look at what's going on in the news today and just, you know, hearing some of the conversations around me, I do feel like we've lost some ground. I think we've definitely lost some ground. Um, I think when we were in the thick of things, everybody understood what anxiety felt like um, because we were all facing a common sort of threat, which was COVID and, and the uncertainty around that. Um, I've had a couple of interesting conversations actually over the last couple of months where people, they seem to have um, so they put their, their COVID anxiety behind them. And interestingly, and, and one of them, and she said it in the nicest possible way, she's like, well, I don't understand why you're still anxious. And I said, well, to be honest, I was, I was anxious going into this um, and a germaphobe. And then this just kind of fed into, hey, this is all the reasons you should be anxious. You know, look at, we were right to be, you know, at that heightened state all of these years. And now intellectually, I know that COVID is still out there. It's still a possibility. We still see articles, but I also have of all of my, as I like to call my everyday regular anxiety as well. And so I think that people, there's a starting to be a sense of, well, well can't you just move on from whatever anxiety you had? Um, which is, it's true. If you have situational anxiety, which a lot of people did during COVID, you know, it is easy to kind of move out of that space perhaps now that life is, is essentially returned back to normal. Um, so I think that that's one of the things that, that, you know, it's not stigma, but it's the why can't you get over it sort of piece. And then the other piece, particularly lately, uh, that's been confounding things to me is some of the incidents, some of the high profile media incidents that have been reported on involving people with mental illness. And I think we're getting back to this narrative that, well, people who are mentally ill are inherently dangerous or inherently violent. And that just isn't the case. And the stats don't bear that out. And what's frustrating to me is I read these media stories, I see them on the news, and the, the mental illness seems to be the lead, right? It's mentally ill individual did X or mentally ill individual did Y. 
And the reality is that the stats still bear out that those who suffer from severe mental illness are still more likely to be victims of violence than they are to be violent. And, you know, the greatest predictor of violence has nothing to do with mental health. The actual risks, um, you know, I talked about this a couple of years ago when I was with it CMHA. The major risk factors for violence really are, are you young, male, single, and what's your socioeconomic status? So there, there is that component to it. So, you know, my mental illness status has no great way to predict whether or not I will become violent in the future. And I think that that is sort of an unpacking that we need to have in the media. That we need to stop leading with the perpetrator had a mental illness. We don't know that the mental illness actually even contributed to that. So, you know, I think you and I had briefly had an exchange. You know, research is starting to show that there's a lot of co-contributing factors that might actually be more linked to why there was violence as opposed to the mental illness. So mental illness is one aspect, but it could be, you know, do you have a substance use disorder. So I saw, I was, you know, kind of looking around things. I saw one stat that said uh, there was a study done and less than 3% of people with a severe mental illness had been involved in a violent act uh, between two and four years before the study was done. Compare that to the general population, it was 0.8%. So still, you know, not a huge number. But if you add substance use disorder to that mental illness, that leapt up to 10%. So I think that we need to start looking at mental illness as one piece of the puzzle. But the problem is, as long as the media leads with these stories, it's the mental illness that leads. And that is that is where the stigma is starting to come back. And it will come back, right? If you believe that a mentally ill person is more likely and more prone to commit violence, and nobody is dissuading you of that belief, that is how you perceive the world going forward. And those are the nature of the conversation you're having. So I know for me personally, I think I would, if I hadn't told my story already, I think with the current environment, I don't know that I would be telling my story. And that that to me is very scary. That feels like I've set myself back, you know, eight or 10 years just in accepting what I have and what that means. I think we always have a great need though, to be able to rationalize and understand why something happened. <laughs> so if there is a situation, for example, some of the violence that's been happening in, in the subways in Toronto, we want to understand why would somebody do that? Like why would somebody randomly stab someone? Because it's almost, it, it's impossible to understand you, yourself, me, yep. doing that. Yep. So something must be wrong in that person's brain to do that. But that doesn't mean the person is schizophrenic or is having um, a psychotic break from bipolar disorder. Um, it, it, uh, it could mean that or, or is having a substance use disorder. It could mean that that person is in a place where they're afraid. They don't have anywhere to go. They're, they're frustrated. Um, they can't get help because they don't know where to, how to reach out or the help is just not available, but our, but our go-to place with any kind of violence like that is they must be mentally ill. Yes. Um, the biggest predictor to, uh, to violence of that kind is, or, or violence of any kind, for example, the mass shooter in Nova Scotia uh, is, is a, an extreme um, example of this, but the biggest predictor is someone who is a spousal abuser. Yes. 
So a lot of escalation in violent crime does come from someone who is a spousal abuser. Now, why is that person a spousal abuser? It could be that they were abused, and that is part of this continuing um, passing on of trauma and abusive trauma that we see. Um, But we need to identify. So I think we need to look at violence like this and and mental health like this. It happened. The mental health issue is happening. Is that the reason why there was violence? Um, Is all violence directly related to a mental health issue? So that takes us back. You have a mental illness. That doesn't mean that was the cause of it. Yes. Yes. this This is what frustrates me because we don't do the root cause analysis. And we're happy to just say it was mental illness. We do. Oh, well, we have we have mental illness supports in place. We're fine. So we're not actually getting to the root. We're not actually trying to solve the violence by figuring out what is causing the violence. So interestingly, I came across a stat. I think it was it's a it's an American site, mentalhealth.gov. And only four percent of people who committed homicide was it due to their mental illness. So what is feeding the other 96%? And to your point, there's things like spousal abuse. There's socioeconomic factors. There's things like that. But we know as a society, those are big and those are complex. And those problems would require more money and more research. And I think somewhat cynically, perhaps, we're like, nope, it's mental illness. We have supports. You know, move on. Um, And I think we're doing a disservice when we allow these stories to stand as being the violence because of mental illness versus why was there actual violence? What was the, you know, I was saying it's funny because, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, look, if you, if you did a survey, probably 99% of people who commit homicide have two eyes. That doesn't mean that having two eyes was the causation for committing the homicide. Right. So just because I have anxiety, just because I have OCD, just because I have major depressive disorder, that might not be why I'm committing a crime or why I'm committing a violent act. Um, But unfortunately, we we sensationalize it. And and, you know, the subway attacks in Toronto are an excellent um, example of that. Right. The story was always leading with, well, what's their mental health? And even how reporters seem to be, you know, reporting on these stories, that always seems to be the first thing we're trying to get at now is, well, what's their mental health? And I do get it to your point earlier. It's, you know, it's hard to conceive of committing that kind of violence. So you're trying to find a reason, but we're finding the wrong reason, I think. And then we're using that as, you know, oh, well, that's the problem. Salt. We can fix that. So, you know, it's disturbing to me that it's also disturbing to me that we don't have more people speaking out, right, to say, hey, we need to do more about this. We seem to be happy with this, you know, narrative. And maybe it's because it is easier, but but that has an impact and that has, you know, that has long term effects on if this is how society is viewing, viewing people with mental illness, then stigma does come back up. Whether we want it to or not, stigma will come back up if the prevailing sense from society is that mentally ill people or people with mental illness are violent. So why would I ever now confess that I, you know, yeah, I suffer from these things or, you know, I don't suffer with, I live with these things and they present challenges, but I'm not going to tell that to anybody anymore. That just isn't going to happen if I was myself 10 years ago in the same space. Yeah. And 
we tend to then walk away and say, okay, uh, done and dusted. They've arrested a person. Um, you know, we're being told that person had mental health struggles. Let's, like you said, yep. you move on to the next thing. A lot of the times you don't kind of check in again later and say, what did happen? What actually yep. happened in that situation? And if the person was struggling, did they get help? Yes. And that takes us to the whole, um, I think, part of what we're talking about here. It takes me to the idea that you can't just go in and look at someone's brain. Let's take them, you know, yes. do an MRI and we'll find out whether yes. they're schizophrenic or bipolar or or OCD or a germaphobe or whatever, because we'll be able to see something in their brain that says definitively that is what's happening to the person. And I think that that um, a, an example was brought up um, to me in this, and this was a while ago, and part of it was talking about driving a car. And there was an incident uh, several years ago about a gentleman in Hamilton who uh, drove off the road and there was some questions about his, uh, his mental health. We can say, you can't have, you have to wear glasses when you drive because yep. we've done a test and it shows that your eyesight is at such a level, you must wear glasses. And the other one that's often brought up is epilepsy. While we know if you've had an epileptic seizure within the last 12 months, you cannot drive a car. Yep. Your license is, is revoked, right? Why aren't we able to do that kind of determination for someone with, with mental illness? And it's literally because you can see the other things. And the yep. struggle that we still have, um, and there's no stigma associated with that, but the biggest struggle we still have with mental with mental um, health is that we don't know what medications to give what person. Yes. So there are so many different medications. What works for you may not work for me. And there's there's no way for the medical profession, um, even given as far as we've gone, to be able to say, oh, okay, I know this about Jen. I know this about her brain and I know this about her biology. This medication will work for you. And I know this about Janice. So this medication is going to work for her. And off we go and, and live and all a happy is good. Life. All is well. Yeah. yeah. If anybody knows who's been on those medications, sometimes they also stop working. We would love the exactly. certainty of if you put on a pair of glasses, not to worry, you're not going to have this issue anymore. Uh, but to your point, the brain is still a very new frontier for us. And even if you can see different types of electrical activity, that doesn't translate easily into the, and these are the decisions Janice will make, right? It's that's the electrical activity or that's how the cells are working, but there is no predictor in the same way that we have for other things. And, you know, I, I also find it difficult. So already, if, you know, the healthcare sector already has a duty to report. If, if I'm, if I am struggling, they have a duty to report if I'm going to seriously, if they have reason to believe I would cause myself or others harm. But for them to have to go any further than that is, to your point, it's very hard. There isn't a single kind of test or no test. But I feel like we're overwhelming doctors in the medical system with, well, diagnose them and fix them and find a way to do it. And then they can, you know, they can do certain things or, you know, or I'll feel better about it. Um, which is great, except we, in Ontario, anyway, we have a, a health system that's completely bogged down, um, particularly in this region. If you are trying to access psychiatric care, it is extremely difficult. 
And again, even if you can access psychiatric care, they cannot tell you that, you know, Jennifer Fisk has major depressive disorder and so she is likely to commit violence, right? They just can't do that. That's not how our brains work. And so I, I will tell you, uh, I, you know, I think I heard a bit of that interview and I was really, really frustrated with the simplicity with which we view mental health struggles at times. It is not as simple as yes or no, A or B. Um, our brains all function differently. There's a number of factors that go into how that brain functions and the decisions they make. But at the end of the day, I am no more likely really to commit a violent crime than the average person. And yet again, it's like, well, she has mental illness, so so she should be able to. So I wish that, I wish that the science, if people would believe the science and not just the headlines, I guess, would be that, right? Believe the science, know that there's a lot of unknown out there and be comfortable with that unknown. Um, but yes, if they do develop an MRI that is going to tell us all these things, please let me know. I'd like to be first in line because yeah. I'd also like to know when my episodes are going to come on, right? When those when those troughs are going to hit, um, which if they could take a picture of my brain and tell me that would be that would be fantastic. So, but you know, back to back to the the gentleman who was who was driving, and it might have been a mental health issue. How do how do we know? Are we supposing? Right? Could it have been any other type of health issue that he just didn't report? Right? Was that the first words out of his mouth at the scene? If somebody says, "Oh, you know, I, I've been really struggling with my depression," okay, but it could have been these other factors. But again, we stop it. It could have been the depression, and and that is the frustrating part that we seem to continue to vilify um, and stigmatize mental illness as much as we said we were going to after COVID, and we all had a better understanding. I think those of us who who were left with it, if you will, after COVID moved on, those of us who still, you know, went into COVID with it and have left COVID with it, um, at least my experience has been that we are taking a step back. And that that's heartbreaking to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you're talking about something like anxiety or panic attacks or the kind of thing that that many, many, many people experienced as a direct result of the stresses they were under because yeah. of COVID. I don't experience that because nobody is saying to me, oh, well, you shouldn't be bipolar anymore because I'm in a, I'm in a different, different classification. And yet at the same time, the stigma for the type of illness I have can be much greater because it is harder to understand. And um, I don't feel stigma. And, I, and I, I think that that's because I talk openly about it and I feel okay about it, that I don't feel the stigma. But um, it, it stigma is the killer, really, because that's what prevents people from going to get help. And I yeah. do see that that it isn't I don't know if it's even so much that stigma is coming back. It's that people are forgetting. It doesn't exist anymore. This idea that we're all struggling. We're all in this together. Yes, it's that is polarization, right? That seems right. to have occurred. At, yeah, and it's like what you're saying at at work, and why aren't why aren't you over it now? Yeah. Um, but in a way, it's just that it's not on people's radar anymore. They've got all sorts of other stuff on their on their radar now. But I do think, on one positive side, and I've just been doing a lot of work on this, that that mental health and and recognition in the workplace. I believe is getting better um, and has actually improved 
uh, post-COVID as people are going back to work and more and more companies and managers and supervisors are understanding that they need to, to have more care and better understanding of what their employees are going through. So, uh, uh, you know, a group leader on a, on a project, a project leader needs to be able to recognize what's happening with Janice or what's happening with Jen. It doesn't seem to be coming to work every day with the same attitude and try to recognize that and understand how to reach out and have that conversation. Yep. Is that something that you are experiencing in any way at work? So I will tell you, I am incredibly lucky with the group that I work with that I think I've been, you know, I'm lucky enough that they can have a quiet, my friend, I work with a couple of really good friends and they will have a quiet conversation with me and they know what's up and they will talk to me. And I am so blessed for that. But I wonder how much of this shift now is, you know, maybe part of it is a reduction in stigma, but maybe part of it is the economy we're in. Employers need to keep workers. They absolutely have to keep workers. And is that sort of forcing empathy? And I'm good. Hey, if, if forced empathy is how we get to a place where we are treating people better in the workplace um, and we're having these open conversations, I'm I'm grateful for forced empathy then. But I wonder if that's part of it is we can't afford to just get rid of Janice or Jennifer anymore because it's going to take us eight months or nine months or 10 months to replace them. You know, I'll take them at 25% and, you know, try and help them versus get rid of them all together and then try and attract new talent. So I think that that's part of it. I think what scares me, though, is increasingly we see a real polarization of views, whether it's about mental health, whether it's about politics. And when we get those polarizing views, it's hard to find the empathy. But we may have first empathy because of the economy. If the economy, you know, levels out again, does that empathy stay or does this again become one of those polarizing, those polarizing pieces? And I'm saddened when I see that we've gone from three years ago, we're all in this together. It doesn't matter what our political views are, we're gonna do this together. Um, to what we see as the political and the social landscape now, frightens me that we can go that quickly and that fast, that um, suddenly we're in a place where things that frankly, five years ago, I didn't think we would be talking about negatively, uh, people's gender, people's sexual orientation, I mean, I thought those conversations were long past us, and yet we're right back to where we were. And so is that polarization going to erode the empathy that was required to help, you know, diminish the stigma as well? That's where my my concern is on that front. Well, we've talked many times before about the need for uh, funding. Yeah. You and I can talk on and on and on about, you know, what's happening. The need is there. And we've talked a lot about stigma and stigma amongst other people. But what we are, we're not seeing that open commitment, stated commitment from governments that if mental health is important. I have not seen any giant pronouncements about mental health uh, funding. I would, I would have liked to have seen a mental health announcement simple, similar to the dental announcement or... I would like to see some sort of commitment to, at levels of government about, you know, we talk about vision zero for road safety. So that's, you know, that's kind of my background is road safety. I would love to talk about a vision zero for people who have mental illness. And not that we wouldn't necessarily have mental illness, but my vision zero is that you have zero wait time to be able to access the care that you need. Because we know that care helps. We know that care matters. It changes quality of life. 
you know, it may not impact all of the other socioeconomic factors, but it does increase them. It increases your ability to, you know, earn a wage, live in a situation that is healthy and safe. But if we can't access care, if you can't get into the, to the care, it doesn't matter what else is there. And, and you just, you don't have, you can't climb out of the pool if there's no ladder to help you. And so my vision zero would be, you know, where's the ladder? What are we going to do? How are we going to help those people? And it, it saddens me that we're not seeing that from, from that type of leadership from any level of government with that, you know, very clear stated goal. Because we know if you state a goal, governments are good, pretty good at achieving them. And so the question is, how do we get government to, to, to focus on this again? How do we cut through the noise of all of the competing priorities um, and encourage them to get back to focusing on mental health in some way? And so, you know, I'm optimistic that it can be done. It's going to take a lot of work, though. And I think that part of that is having the open conversations 